our housing minister, BC housing minister, Ravi Kalan, um, going out public saying the housing crisis is hurting people and it's holding back the economy. And, and the provincial government is taking action to cut municipal red tape and get homes built faster. A rather unprecedented move, if you will. Here is Ravi Kalan uh, making this announcement today. Have a listen. I'll let the mayor speak to Vancouver. I'll just speak uh, about the province overall. And I'll just say that we are in a situation where young people right now can't find uh, homes, uh, can't afford to buy a home. And we have the risk of losing young people to other provinces. And that's just un- is unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable to my colleagues. It's unacceptable to the premier. And so uh, what we'll be seeing and what we're encouraging local governments to do is do the community planning early have the community engage on what they would like to see in their community, how they would like to see it in their community, make a decision, and then let's not relitigate decisions once they've been made. Then when a project comes forward and it fits within uh, the community plan, let's get on with building it. And that's uh, something that I've been urging our local government partners, uh, something that uh, certainly with the 10 communities that have been chosen here, that's what we'll be doing, pushing them to get their community plans in place, and then depoliticizing the decision-making. Once uh, a project fits within the community plan. It should not have to go back to council. It should not have to be relitigated. The staff should be able to make decisions so that we can get this critical housing built. All right. So now we connect. I'm keeping you so busy. Richard Zussman <laughs> joining me again off the top of the show. Thank you. Our global news reporter based at the legislature. Richard, thank you for doing this. Big announcement. Was watching the press briefing as it happened. You heard uh, Minister Kellon right there saying, let's not relitigate things. Let's not go back to council. Once you do a community plan, uh, the, the incentive here for uh, the province needing to step in. Is this, is this rather unprecedented for the province to say, hey, municipalities, if you don't fix this, we're coming in and we're going to clean it up for you. It sure is. This is completely unprecedented. Uh, we knew with the new legislation that the housing policies were new, uh, unique in Canada. This list is unique in Canada, establishing uh goals for municipalities to meet to get housing. And like yesterday, Jody, I was grinding up right to the last minute to join you. I was just doing an interview with Dean Murdoch. He's the mayor of Saanich. They are one of Mm -hmm. the communities on the list. Uh, They are happy to be on the list, but they also believe that the province must step to the plate here as well and ensure that there is infrastructure to support housing. So be it Vancouver or North Vancouver District or Port Moody, West Vancouver, whoever's on this list, uh, if you are going to be approving housing and quickly, the province needs to be there at the table with supports for roads, for infrastructure, for schools, for hospitals. All of that is going to take time and a lot of money to do. But implementing this sort of carrot, as in here's money, here's support to do it, that's new. The big question still, Jody, is what is the stick? If these municipalities, Mm. and, you know, the minister wouldn't say it, but I can, there's a naughty part of this list and a nice part of this list. And the nice part are communities like Saanich, Victoria, Vancouver, Delta, who have been more aggressive in putting in that density and improving their housing policies as demand has dictated over the last few years. There are some on the naughty side of the list. Uh, Port Moody has been resistant for a long time, although this council uh, is more supportive of housing. West Vancouver has been resistant to this sort of density, and so has Oak Bay. So the question is, what if those communities that have been resistant in the past 
continue to be resistant? What will the province do? Minister was asked about that a few times. Still no answer, but that's going to be very interesting to see how quickly the province gets involved to ensure that those communities build up the density like their neighbours do. It is jarring to me, Jody, and I'm sure you've experienced when you're in the Tri-Cities and you drive from Port Moody to Coquitlam and you go from seeing those single-family detached homes in Port Moody and the second you cross that municipal border, all of a sudden there are towers around you in Coquitlam, clearly there's an issue because no matter what side of that municipal border you live on, you need to access things like transit and jobs and resources And for one community to move forward with getting people into homes and the others not, clearly an issue the province is trying to address here. Yeah, well articulated as always, Richard. And and what pops to mind for me is Boundary Road when you cross over from East Vancouver into Burnaby. And it's just like, holy different city. Oh, my goodness. Or even (laughs) crossing over the Oak Street Bridge and seeing the gentle density of Richmond, but high density gentle versus, you know, Carisdale, Shaughnessy, Upper Point Grey, you know, the West Side that and and then you look at places like Victoria and really that unprecedented move by Victoria to say, hey, you know what, every every single family dwelling can become a place to build multi units like that's rather uh, progressive, to say the least. Yeah, and that's that theory of the missing middle and Vancouver. Uh, the reason we're in a housing crisis is in part due to the issues Vancouver had with permitting, approving housing mm, yeah. in many of those regions that you mentioned. Sure, you can look in Yale Town and Marine Drive and see density, but it is still predominantly dominated by single-family homes. And the yeah. price is at a point now where it is unattainable for literally anybody to buy their first home in the city. So Vancouver is being seen now as improving its permitting process, uh, moving more quickly to get these projects done. But a lot of work still needs to be done, and that includes the sort of stuff that you mentioned, uh, either soft density in some neighbourhoods, townhomes, uh, low rises, and in some other areas, especially around those transit corridors, we're going to start yeah. seeing that higher density. And that is part of what this is, list is about. It's about creating a partnership between the province and these 10 municipalities one-on-one. Mayor Murdoch just said to me, uh, they are getting ready to engage in these meetings with the province, and the province will be working with each municipality to create a plan that works for them. No, Minister Callum's not going to go neighbourhood to neighbourhood and say, you need houses there and you need houses there, but it's going to be part of a much larger dialogue about this is the type of housing philosophy you need to put in place, this is how we'll help you get there, And together, we can all address the number one issue in our province. Any mayor you speak to, Jody, and we saw it on election night. There was a massive switchover. Voters were frustrated with incumbents. And the number one issue that universally any mayor I've asked in B.C. says the biggest issue is housing. And it continues to be. And these mayors know it. They heard it from their constituents. The province knows it. They hear it every day. And the federal government hears it, too. So this is the start of that partnership to build that housing that is desperately needed in these 10 communities and others. The minister was quick to say there are others that need it, too. They're just not on this first list. Right. So the the city of Vancouver just put out a statement saying that they welcome the opportunity to be the first uh, on the first cohort list. And here is the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, at this morning's uh, briefing. Have a listen. Uh, I just want to be very clear. Uh, city of Vancouver, um, 
it's a top priority to build as much housing as quickly as possible. Where we come in is the, the number one challenge is the permitting process takes way too long. And I know we celebrated uh, issuing a number rec uh, a record number of permits at the city recently. But that's not really helpful. That's probably the wrong metric to look at because if it takes six to 12 years to get a permit, by the time you actually get your permit, uh, the economics don't work on the project anymore. So we are going to speed up the permitting process. When it comes to um, uh, building housing, I want to be very clear. If something makes sense for the city over the next 30 years, we are going to do it and we're going to do it fast. We don't have to litigate these things. Uh, they will uh, be a priority. So anything along transit, anything along main arterial roads, um, and more density faster, that's what we'll be focused on. That again, Mayor Ken Sim. And Richard, I'm talking about this uh, re-litigating things. I mean, the Vancouver plan has been <laughs> in the planning phase for four and a half years, the planning. And then the plan comes in and the checked boxes are all there. And then a developer comes in and says, what about this? And they're like, well, we're going to need to take that to council. It's like... Why, why the plan if we're going to, you know, hopefully this might streamline some of that or perhaps give some of the mayors an out on the nimbyism that happens in their jurisdiction? I think that is the biggest issue, Jody, you've hit it there, that there is going to be nimbyism in many communities, not just in Vancouver, but across Metro Vancouver. And yeah. part of this will be a uniform approach saying that, yes, every neighborhood looks a little bit different. Yes, different neighborhoods can take on different density, but your neighborhood will not be excluded from this just because you have really expensive homes or just because right. you have really vocal uh, neighbors. This is about prioritizing a region, and the focus will be on those closest to transit first because we know that that is the goal from all levels of government is to get people moving through public transit. That's why they've invested so much in this. But density yeah. will be appearing everywhere. We're not going to see high rises dropped in the middle of Shaughnessy, but we are going to see projects approved more quickly uh, in those neighborhoods that encourage density. But you've hit an issue it has here as well, yeah. right? Like yeah. the development yeah. issue is still a problem. All of that is still an issue. Richard, you've got your finger on the pulse, pun intended, on what is happening at Surrey Memorial Hospital. There's so much concern at that hospital about patient care and a crisis, a critical situation that's happening there. Yesterday, we were talking all about this. You were talking with uh, Dr. Lee at Fraser Health. We, we had Health Minister Adrian Dix come on on short notice at the end of yesterday's program. Uh, some movement on that today with just a couple minutes uh, here. Can you, can you give us the lay of the land of what's happening today? Yeah, my understanding is Dr. Victoria Lee may be doing some more talking. Uh, there is a plan and works to have a town hall uh, between leadership at Fraser Health and doctors uh, in Fraser Health. It may include more than that. That information is just coming to me now. Uh, we know that Dr. Lee has prided herself on these town halls she does with staff, and clearly this has hit a crisis point. So my understanding is they are organizing now another conversation. I also understand that uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix has been meeting with Fraser Health leadership. He does that uh, quite often, but uh, my understanding is the topic of conversation clearly uh, are the continued concerns in the region. So we hear from Minister Dix at 2 o'clock today. He's making an announcement around uh, pharmacies. Uh, I will be asking him questions around the work that's being done in Fraser Health. And we also know there's another letter that has surfaced. Uh, it's from a week ago, but it's an important letter uh, from those doctors at Surrey Memorial saying to the province, you need to do one of two things. 
You either need to hire more hospitalists now or you need to go on diversion. And diversion would mean that patients uh, are sent away from Surrey Memorial to other local hospitals because Surrey Memorial can't handle it. I asked Mr. Dix about that yesterday. Uh, He said they are not going on diversion but he also wouldn't commit to hiring new staff, saying that this is an issue down the line, Jody, that they need to ensure that there are free beds uh, in long-term care, in assisted living, uh, in different departments of the hospital. It's not specifically an ER staffing issue. Uh, It is a transfer of patient issue, and that's what they need to address. And as we mentioned yesterday, and just for the sake of reiterating, somebody might be yelling at their radio right now, this is all a tactic to, you know, put pressure on yeah. the government to get more money. That that can play into this, but rather unprecedented to, to see physicians stepping up and putting their names on letters and, and pushing it out so publicly. Is that true? It's for sure a tactic. And it's for sure unprecedented. Both things can be true. And uh, they are working to get a better deal for hospital lists. uh, But we are seeing an issue where we are seeing more doctors speak out publicly than we've ever seen. Uh, And we're hearing things like, I wouldn't even send my family member there from people who work there. That's highly concerning, obviously. Highly concerning. Richard Zussman, as always, thank you for allowing me to steal a full half hour of your work day. I appreciate you, my friend. Sorry I was late. Always my pleasure to be on. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Trigger warning, we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about taking sides. We're going to talk about tossing barbs at people who don't agree with your political stripe. And that is something that has grown in ways that I think we can all agree, if that's even possible anymore, that it's gone too far. We've kind of jumped the shark when it comes to disagreeing politically. It's almost as though it's rooted in anger and hatred now as opposed to just opposing points of view or opposing policy or opposing ideas. Do we need to pull back on this and try and find a better path forward? Uh, If you ask me, yes. As somebody who is paid to give their opinion on talk radio, I can tell you that uh, for the most part, lovely people reach out and give me their opinions, give me their takes and what have you. But inevitably, there is one if not a couple, depending on the subject matter, who might come at somebody who is on the radio, someone like myself, with a next level of vitriol. I won't go into my story of online harassment. You've likely heard it. And if you haven't, Google Jody Vance and online harassment and you'll see. Uh, You need not Google far into my next guest's social media, particularly the cesspool that has become Twitter, uh, to find some vitriol just simply about This woman, who is an iconic Canadian, an incredibly talented Canadian Hall of Fame singer-songwriter, author, actor, animal advocate, vegan, and also somebody with a political opinion. (gasps) I know. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Jan Arden to the program. Jan, hello. I was thinking, who the heck is she talking about? (laughs) Hi, Jody. First of all, I want to preface this entire crowd. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's so amazing to me that, you know, the, 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 the sentence that I get sort of thrown at me over and over again, and it's various themes on this sentiment is you're in music, stay out of politics, you fat C word, vitriol, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I know it's a very small percentage of people that do that kind of stuff, but from my point of view, Jody, and I'm sure you can attest to this. 
if you were around in the 60s and the 70s, like I was, all musicians, it was all politics. The musicians of the day, Joan Baez, um, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, people like Bono, people that have, have, have run for office. Ronald Reagan was an actor. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was, you know, the, you know, the, the, the governor of California. You know, so many people, uh, uh, case in point, the, the president of Ukraine was a yeah. very famous comedian and actor that chose to go into politics. So that is an old, tired narrative, and people really need to lay down that broom because... I am allowed to have an opinion. I'm certainly allowed to vote for whoever I want. And hooray, democracy. The person with the most votes won. So they should have. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to be in a country where people aren't vilified, persecuted, fear-mongered, kept from the polls, threatened within their lives. We march into these polling stations with thousands of volunteers and we cast a vote. And we hope that our guy wins, but it doesn't always work that way. Uh, there, that's my that's my little caveat to this conversation. Um, and you're right; there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of anger, and it need not be. I'm a proud Albertan. I'm hoping everyone works together to, you know, to make it the best place it can possibly be. Um, and, and and it's just it's crazy that it comes with so much baggage these days. And it's the opposition of thought that then becomes hateful and vitriolic because you love you love your province so much that you you create and do incredible things that are based in and rooted in Calgary because well, you I've love never it. Left here. And you I know, love I'm, that about you. There's yeah. so many people, there's so many artists that, you know, any modicum of success. They pack their bag and they go to Los Angeles or New York or the States or Toronto or, um, you know, they leave. And uh, and I, there's nothing that would make me leave here, really. Um, I, I do love it here. I've filmed my television show here. Uh, I've lived here all my life. I'm, I'm like fourth or fifth generation of, you know settlers let's let's just be very clear about that i am not an original albertan i will leave that to the indigenous peoples they are the original people but as far as white folks that you know came stumbling up from from over from europe and and in covered wagons up from the states yeah my my family's been here a long long time and um i was traditionally a conservative voter my parents were, but I think people have to understand, too, that the personalities of parties change just like their personnel changes. With every leader, a party kind of changes its outlook and how it functions and how it represents itself. And I think what happened in Alberta was a, a real, it wasn't a story that surprised anybody here. I think people no. that have voted conservative for 40, 50, 60 years um, thought this is the party that it used to be like, especially farm people, rural people. And, yeah. you know, it's not. But e- even having said that, things change. I-, I wouldn't want to be in politics for love nor money. People are constantly no. asking me, would you want to do this? I'm like, no. But it's a, it's a hard gig. And whoever sits in that chair, whether it's Danielle Smith or Rachel Notley or uh, Allison Redmond or Peter Lougheed or whoever it is, A year from now, the story is going to be a tired out one, Jody Vance, and that's going to be people are going to be disappointed. They're not doing what they said they would do. Um, You know, that that age old adage of it doesn't matter who you vote for. The government always gets in. So we shall see how this unrolls. But there's no point in 
you know, the the bet, you know, we won, you guys lost. There's no losers and there's no winners. It, in a democracy, we're all governed by the person that does win, but it doesn't mean she governs half of the people. It's, no. it's all of us. We all participate. All of us as taxpayers, all of us as people that, that live here and want to make our lives here for our families. And we all want the same stuff. It just yeah. drives me bonkers. Ultimately. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you? Because you did. I love the fact that you use your voice politically speaking. And as you said, so many artists before you have and will continue to, I hope, long into the future. But you unabashedly said, this is what I'm doing. And here's why. And I love this. And everybody just go vote. And a lot of people um, gave you pushback on just saying that. Oh, and it was it was unbelievable. They're saying you're using your influence okay to garner votes okay uh i'm i'm not standing outside of a polling station plying people with liquor and you know doing unseemly things which did happen in this election with certain people being at polling stations oh coercing people and you know doing something that literally is against the rules of politicking I put my face on uh, on a on a picture, you know, a picture. Yeah, of course you put your face uh-huh. on a picture. That's uh-huh. what a picture is. And mm-hmm. and the NDP officially stamped it, saying, you know, Jan is is endorsing Rachel Notley. It's right. not illegal. It's not pandering. I'm not unduly influencing people. I'm saying this is what I'm voting for for my future. And of course, you know, you want to kind of at the 11th hour say maybe there's a few people that are undecided and and that really like me and think well you know if jan's doing that maybe i'll do it too but everyone is doing it but what's okay for one side is not okay for the other side and and the thing that is just so dumbfounding is is the amount of hatred that it goes from zero to 100 very quickly there's no it, it it's so childish and like some of the comments, they make it so easy for me to go after them, but I don't. I'm just like, that, that's just too easy. It's Watching your clapbacks, though, are really fun because when people are like, you don't matter, and then you quote tweet that, well, clearly I matter to you because you're posting on my social media, like the, the want to just be mad at it, at your reach, I, at your opinion, also, at your platform, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But I also try and have some modicum of, of empathy because, you know, for the most part, uh, it's a misrepresentation of a whole group of people. Uh, you know, for, for anyone to say the UCP party is a group of this and this and this, I don't like that kind of talk. I don't think it's right. true. I have friends that voted for Danielle Smith and the representative in their area. These are people that are close to me. And I know we've talked about the political stuff. That's their yeah. reason for it. Um, I think there's a lot of mudslinging on both sides of, of political fences. And, of course, in Alberta, it was a two-party system here. It almost felt very American. The Liberals were nowhere to be seen, the Green Party, the Independents. Uh, if anything, they kind of screwed up a vote that, you know, some of these writings were decided by two, four, ten, a yeah. hundred votes. Yeah. Uh, the entire election could have been swayed differently with 4,000 votes. So everyone needs to really think about that. Um, we've never had a bigger opposition in Alberta, which I really think is important in politics going forward. Um, there were some kind of nefarious people that didn't get reelected. And I think that's a great part of democracy. You know, people 
you know, they wanted to be have the UCP, but but they didn't want that guy and they didn't want that woman. So, you know, they voted for somebody different in their riding. So things like that are a big shift in Alberta politics. But it's no surprise what happened here. And um, I just I hope people calm down and yeah. find some some peace of mind. And it's not us and them. It's we. It's we. And we have to go forward and make it work. You know, I was walking through the airport yesterday and I thought, if this was real life Twitter, if you could put tweets over people's heads and see them like little bubbles as they walk through the airport, you know, the anonymous comments, people that smile at you as you're going by with your suitcase or getting a coffee or whatever, all of us in this airport that are coming from all different walks of life, we're all flying somewhere or going on a holiday or, you know, going to work. If we could only see what those comments were, I think we'd find a lot of the times they don't match with what our real-time, real-life experience is with another human being. And I hope we all start living in the real world where, you know, you can help somebody who's out of gas on the side of the road, and and, and they could be from a completely different party than you or walk of life or... I just I hope we find our way back because whatever this is, it's not working and it's making yeah. people feel sick. I have Jan Arden, singer, songwriter, author, actress and activist when it comes to protecting animals, all animals, in fact, and, and very poignant on your social media with regard to that. But you have one thing, Jan, that is extra close to your heart, a promise broken by our current prime minister. Tell people about your mission to end live horse export yes been going on for a long long time i know we we have a very short amount of time but uh this is all about awareness large draft horses are purpose-bred so they're not found on the streets they're not coming up over the borders they're purpose-bred in large large feedlots in alberta and in, in manitoba uh every few weeks three four weeks they're stuffed into wooden crates terrified and they go on an eight thousand kilometer journey uh, going through turbulence, no food, no water. They get to Japan, and they are brutally slaughtered uh, for something called bashimi, which is a raw sushi uh, delicacy. Uh, but anyway, it, it's we certainly don't take issue with whatever, whatever people want to eat, and I've always been very clear about that with, with what we've been doing with the Horses Hit campaign. Uh, do the math in your head. Um, it's about transportation. It's about shipping live animals. They've stopped it all over the world. We're one of the last countries on the planet shipping live horses. Uh, we ship most of the, um, we supply most of the world's horse meat. So that's where we're at, Jody. It's about awareness. Uh, the government did promise to mandate it well over a year ago after Trudeau was elected. I know he's got a lot of stuff on his plate. Every government does. But I also believe that this, we just have to keep the pressure up. And we have to get their attention, and, and that's what we are doing with the Horses Hit campaign. And that's www.horseshit.ca. Um, and you can find out more about what this hideous thing is. And, and we just need to stop it. Horses are very treasured in Canada. They're part of our heritage. They're part of our, you know, of, of, of our settling here. Of, horses have helped human beings discover every corner of the world, and they need to be treated better. Horses Hit. .ca. And when you type that into your Google <laughs> bar, you're going to know why it's funny. Uh, the, we we the, just the don't say it on matter, the radio. 
Exactly. The subject matter, not at all funny, but angry about the fact that this is ongoing in Canada where it's been banned elsewhere. And this is not an industry that is supporting workers and making, you know, important impacts to a country. This is a this is a very small group of people making a lot of money uh, selling to millionaires abroad and in the twenty five million dollars a year. Right. These beautiful draft horses. Yeah. The the feedlots are are disgusting. They're fed a sludge. A big truck goes down a big trough. Uh, You know, you'll see you'll see newborn horses that are lying in mud. Uh, Very little veterinary care. Uh, And and every loophole in the world has been breached. Um, This is an American company that came up from from Washington state when they banned it in 2006. So imagine that 2006 over you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, it was banned in America. And they thought, oh, we can do it out of Canada. And they've been doing it here ever since, very quietly, very on the down low. So, Jody, we really need to keep the pressure up, visit our site, find out more. and um, Easy to write the letter to the government. Easy to add your name to yeah. a, 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 a petition. The be- click of a button. Horseshit.ca. Jan Arden, <laughs> always a pleasure, my friend. I look forward yeah, to seeing you peace. soon next time you're in town. Come over. Yes. Yes, let's okay. see what unfolds. I, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'll be in Vancouver Sunday, Jody. I hope to see you uh, one of those days. Sunday. I'll be there for three days. All right, I'm in. Count me in. Put Bye. me in your calendar. I love you, girl. Okay, Jan Arden. Bye. Yeah. Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. I'm Jody Vance sitting in. BC's public school teachers were surveyed by their union, the BC Teachers Federation, in the first annual BCTF membership survey. And bluntly, the results are stark. 81.5%, of teachers reported experiencing direct impacts from teacher shortages and the stress that comes with that. Some of the biggest impacts reported were being unable to get student supports, loss of preparation time, not being able to take personal or even sick leave. We want to talk these numbers through with the BCTF president, Clint Johnston, who joins me on the line. Thanks for doing this, Clint. Hi, Jody. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm kind of stressed out by what I'm reading about the stress on our teachers in the public school system in British Columbia. How is it landing uh, with you? What What are you seeing happen uh, as associated with these results? Well, I think there's a few things happening at the same time. Uh, it's a good question. By the way, if you're stressed out, you're, uh, you're in good company with many of my members. Um, uh, and I think the reaction is there's a bit of relief, honestly, actually. I think a lot, a lot of teachers really see themselves and feel themselves heard in this report, um, which is always good. It's good to know that, you know, we've actually reflected back to members, their lived experience, uh, how teachers are feeling across province. But it's not great because when you read through the report, it's got some really serious and concerning elements in it about burnout and, and overload and uh, the stress level that teachers are experiencing right now. It is really significant, uh, it, the feeling of, of, of recognizing those gaps in meeting students' needs and, and, and the workload compared year over year. I mean, what do you think needs to be done in order to support our teachers better? Well, thanks for the question. I, I think there's a few pieces, um, and it's certainly concerning because that's the link uh, that I'm not sure people always put together. You know, we report out about how teachers are doing, how they're feeling, but everything in that uh, is an effect on the services they can provide and, and what happens with students in their classroom. Um, I think that that's a, it's a growing concern because year over year, as you said, it's it's increasing 
each year. Uh, and what it means is that the teachers not only aren't able to provide all the services they know they should, but that that year on year continues to wear on them. Um, and I can tell the public that if you think it's concerning to you when your child goes to school and may not be getting everything they can, I can guarantee that the teacher in the classroom who feels under-supported, under-resourced, uh, and can't do that job, they're, they're even more concerned. Uh, and it takes resources. I mean, it's, it's the same thing over and over again, but right now what's really impacting us is the teacher shortage. We need a solid plan, like a resource plan for how are we going to get enough teachers in the system um, that people can take the breaks they need to maintain the rental health, that they can take a sick day when they need it, that they have coverage uh, and we don't have uncertified individuals having to come in and fill those gaps. Um, who do their best, but they're not trained professionals. And, and we need those trained professionals in classes working with students. And Clint, we witnessed over these last few years uh, managing COVID-19, uh, you know, a global pandemic, but BC being the only jurisdiction in North America that kept s schools open um, throughout, uh, the impacts and, and the learning that we all did as a society of where the shortfalls are. I mean, it's one thing to be in a city center and have a well-resourced public school, and it's a completely other experience. And when you get when you get further out in the smaller towns in BC, how that understaffing that you just referenced, you know, when you're asking for retired teachers to come back just so that there's a body there, you know, in a pandemic, mm. you can kind of say, okay, we can understand how that might happen. But now here we are trying to rebuild what has been so difficult. Um, we're seeing it in the medical sector. We're seeing the stresses on our healthcare system. We're, we're looking at it in, in law enforcement, we're in nurses, doctors, law enforcement, and, and teachers, yeah. what the yeah. government needs to do on all of those fronts. Um, where does it mm -hmm. land? What are you hearing from the government? Well, we're, I, I can say that we're hearing the government is finally starting to recognize. Uh, I say finally because for us, we've been talking about a shortage for a long, long time and its impact on the system. Um, but they are recognizing there's a shortage. Uh, you know, you referenced a couple of groups there, uh, nurses, particularly doctors, um, who have had really comprehensive plans put together on, on how to recruit the individuals we need to provide the services that British Columbians expect. And that's great. That's fantastic. Um, and we think it's beyond time that teachers are part of that as well, that they have a solid plan, like I said. We've seen the signs. The government is uh, beginning to pull people together, but they really need to accelerate that, uh, get that work done quickly. And, and most of all, I, you know, the thing you'll hear from me most is, Make sure that it's resourced because right. you talk about rural and remote, and that's absolutely, it's been a problem a long time in those areas, uh, the shortages and the impact on students and teachers. But um, when you're advertising for uncertified individuals in uh, the Fraser Valley, you know, that's not urban and rural. That's not a, a remote and rural situation. So right. uh, it's of a scale that we hope it's everywhere in the province. It's just the scale that differs. Um, and we need some action definitely from the government now. Rural, that's the word I was searching for, um, because it's, it, it, it varies, but it, it, so drastically, and yet we're seeing the issues throughout all of British Columbia now, and some of the numbers in this survey, you know, 81.5% of teachers uh, reported experiencing direct impacts from teacher shortages in their school districts, 81.5%, That that's almost all. Yeah, and I, th I think that's really accurate. And, you know, you were referencing uh, COVID and, and how we maintained and kept schools open, and uh, we did. And I know that it was positive in a lot of ways. It did also have an impact on a lot of the people we're talking about right now, the teachers and others working in school systems. Um, and I think 
something that was said during COVID that I've always kept in mind is that it's going to be just as hard coming out uh, as it was going in. And all of those students uh, who missed some school, who missed the development, who missed the socialization that goes along with that, um, they're back in those schools now. So not only are we struggling, we have a shortage, but I would suggest there's more demand to help students deal with um, some mental health issues, uh, with getting back into a groove, with catching up on some missed learning. So not only do we have an under-resourced system, um, but we have added pressure to catch up from a very, very significant event. And that needs to be recognized, needs to be addressed um, so that those students get the learning they deserve. Because just because you live in a remote part of BC, it shouldn't affect the quality of education you get. Uh, We have more than enough in our province to make sure that every child is uh, given every advantage they can through our public education system. We're with BCTF president, the BC Teachers Federation president, Clint Johnston. And Clint, I think you touched on something really important that we should perhaps unpack a little bit further. There are so many parents who see that their children are struggling with a return to to meaningful in-class socialization as well as learning. Um, and that there are some kids who are for the first time being um, put into a classroom environment for whatever reason. And, and the stress that then hits the teacher trying to, to manage the needs of the students within. Um, how do you how do you suggest that a conversation is had if somebody if a parent listening right now is feeling that way or teachers who are struggling with that to communicate within the system with one another to address some of these things that are rather unprecedented in terms of what we've had to deal with in the past well i think uh it's a good question i think the route that we suggest is is the same one we always do which is go in and have a have a conversation with your child's teacher first. Um, I think what I would add to that, given our conversation right now in the context we're talking about is, is, uh, is be sympathetic to what everyone is going through, you as a parent, your child as a student, but also the individual you're going to talk to as a, as a teacher, as a caring professional, um, and approach it with a problem-solving uh, look. Uh, but also, hopefully, what this Study will make you understand as well. Each parent out there is really believe what your teacher is telling you. If they're telling you that there are reasons, um, and you know that they need some support in, in advocating for your child, and they they need some support in advocating for more supports, um, really believe that because these are people who, as you can tell from this this report, are are having some significant struggles of them of their own um, because they're also parents, by the way, you know, it's bears in mind, they might be having the same situation with their child who was out of school and is going back. And, uh, so I think it's the same conversation that always go to the, go to the teacher, have a good positive conversation about how you can work together uh, and do some advocacy together if necessary to get the supports that your child needs. I think that's so key is, is, as the empathy piece on both fronts, see yourself and the other in the conversation. One more thing I want to touch on before I let you go. Um, 45% of teachers reported good or very good physical mental health. You're thinking, okay, well, 45% good or very good. That's, that's okay. 37% reported good or very good mental health. So they're, they're feeling okay in, in, in almost a half, but there's that feeling roughly 40% of teachers reporting that their physical or mental health was actually worse than last year. Mm -hmm. And so many of us would just assume that last year was way worse, but it's, that doesn't, appear to be the case here no and i think it's because of uh some of the things we've touched on and i i agree by the way you hear the 45 percent. that's a good that's a high number but if you look at it from my 
from another perspective, you think, well, that means half, over half of the, yeah. the teachers across BC aren't feeling good. They might be yeah. in the middle of the road, but do you really want, you know, do you really want workers working with your uh, children, teachers working with your children to be okay or not okay? Over half of them, I don't think so. Um, but I think last year was very hard. Um, and I think when you're in a system that we have a shortage of staff, uh, you know, we've said for a long time is under-resourced in a lot of key areas that, uh, that students' needs are drawing on even more heavily now. Those are specialist individuals who support students through some difficult patches or ongoing patches. Um, when that is under-resourced, you're, you're not going to recover year on year. You're not going to get better year on year. You're going to have more of those misses, more of those difficulties, and they're going to compile. So it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing that happen. Um, and it should express some urgency to those decision makers who have the ability to to help address this. How do we get the recruitment happening? Is, are we going to be pulling teachers from elsewhere in the country? Are we are we educating and bringing along more uh, young teachers that, that are coming up into the system? Because it's, it feels like uh, the burnout factor is going to play into people going, you know what, I think it might be time that I retire. I'm a, you know, how many teachers do we need and how do we get there? Well, that's a really good question. I know that that thing you just talked about, burnout, um, during COVID when we surveyed our members, there was a very high number of them uh, who said they were considering leaving within the next year due to that. Um, and yeah. that number hopefully is coming down as things maybe improve slightly, but as we can see, not in every case. It's a really complicated problem. Normally, I, you know, we would say, yeah, we'll probably try to entice more teachers from out in Ontario or across Canada, maybe even international, but the reality is you know, I'm out in Newfoundland right now with, with every president of every teacher union across the country, uh, and our problems are all the same. There's shortages everywhere. So that, you know, yeah. we can't really go to that well. They've got a shortage too. We need to produce more teachers. We need to make more spaces for them. We need to make teacher education more accessible in more parts of our province rather than having it, most everyone have to come down to the metro area to get their education. But I think the biggest one is we have to... Uh, we have to establish teaching as both a respected uh, and a viable career because that's what it is. 30, 35 years of a caring profession, of putting your heart and soul into a profession, demands a lot. So you have to make sure that those individuals are well enough supported. They can do it for 30 or 35 years and that they want to do it and see it as a viable option. So there's a lot to be done. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is resources. You also got to make sure they can live somewhere. We can't even get into that. Yeah. There's no time. But uh housing across the province, wherever you are. It's either expensive or non-existent or both, right? So there's a lot of pieces, um, but I think one of them is getting more drawn to the profession by making it more respected and more viable option. Yeah, it would be great if teachers didn't have to have a secondary income in order to survive in the jurisdiction that they're teaching in. As the daughter of a teacher, I can tell you, um, I see the work in it. So people that want to say, oh, teachers only work, you know, they get summers off. It's like, no, that's not how it works at all. So um, I thank you for your time, Clint, and uh, look forward to hearing about uh, everything you learn uh, out there on the East Coast. Uh, have safe travels, and we'll, and we'll see you when you get back. Thanks very much for having me, Jody. It's a pleasure to be here. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Going to flash back to a conversation that Jill had a few weeks ago when she spoke to Kristen McDonald, the BC teaching assistant who was told by her employer to shut down her social media accounts, including an OnlyFans page because of the content that she shares. As she had said back in that interview, it's spicy, it's sexual, uh, but it's also OnlyFans. It's a subscription so she has a different persona that is online. Well, being a teacher's assistant, uh, 
it didn't land well with her employer. And she would get notified each time she would speak publicly. First story you might have seen was in the Daily Hive. And then, as mentioned, Jill had uh, Kristen on this program a few weeks ago. Well, there's an update looming, and Kristen McDonald now joins us live on the line. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So I revisited your interview with Jill a few weeks ago, and I found it really fascinating, sort of the the pieces of the puzzle um, of, of how it came to light that you had this alternate, uh, um, I don't know, different persona. I don't even, it's still you. It's just, you know, not something that you would necessarily promote in your day job. Um, but Correct. certainly you enjoy yeah. doing it, right? Like, so just, if you wouldn't mind, just update our listener. If they haven't heard that complete story, give us the Coles notes on what has happened to you thus far. Yeah. So, um, I was actually recovering from back surgery. Um, and I received a email, uh, a cease and desist letter from my employer, school district 43. And basically they told me that I needed to take down all my social media uh, as Ava James, which is my alter ego, uh, which included Instagram, TikTok, and OnlyFans. So how did they first figure out that you even had this alter ego? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I have a lot of theories, but of course, they haven't told me anything definitive Uh, I believe that maybe a student came across a TikTok or something or possibly um, one of my colleagues came across a TikTok or something like that. Mm -hmm. But aren't you allowed to have TikTok as a teacher's assistant? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I I believe you are. Um, My TikToks, well, Ava James, her TikToks were done in a bikini. So I think that's uh, what, uh, they were concerned about, but also my argument is, you know, I could, I, I go to the beach regularly or the water park or wherever, and I do wear a bikini. Um, even if I'm, you know, there with my child. Um, so, you know, I could easily see a student at one of those public places in a bikini as well. Um, yeah. yeah. And that wouldn't be a pearl clutching moment. One would assume. I mean, you're a beautiful woman, but that shouldn't be held against you. Thank you. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think appearance should be held against anyone. No, either way. I don't, I don't think people, I'll put it this way. I don't think people would have the same reaction to me in a bikini as you in a bikini. And that's not putting myself down. I just think that for the sake of argument, I think it sounds pretty ridiculous that a picture of you in a bikini under, under any persona name, what have you online, uh, on a social media account, should garner possible termination from your position. Can you give people an idea Thank of you. what, I agree. what, how old are your students? Cause you're, you're a teaching assistant. You support uh, kids with, with uh, special needs. Yes. That's correct. Yes. And I do work in a high school. So it's, it's okay. ages nine to 12. Or sorry, grades nine to, nine to 12. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I have a 15 year old. I would have, you know, no problem with my 15 year old having somebody who he knows all about bikinis. He also probably knows a little something about uh, the the OnlyFans page. Is that what it's called? OnlyFans? The OnlyFans, yes. 
Yeah, yeah, because he would have he would have heard of that. He would not have been able to subscribe to it because I would ground him for the rest of his life. But well, that, you yeah, know, exactly. And he doesn't have a credit card. No, no, he does not. Not to my knowledge, he doesn't. So, Kristen, do you think this is an overreaction by your employer? Is that what we're talking about here? I, I mean, yes, I do think it's an overreaction. I think it's a. A sign of, um, you know, the, it's a conservative system. I keep going back to this, you know, it is a conservative system, but we have seen some progression in the last few years as far as sexual expression and people exploring, uh, you know, their sexuality. So, I mean, I think this is an opportunity for the organization to kind of, um, you know, get with the times and uh, move forward in a more progressive way. You mentioned going to the beach with your child. You're a mother. I am, yeah. As a mother, what do you think of all this? I mean, I, I, th- I think, I think it's, I think it's pretty absurd. Of course, it's such a controversial topic, um, you know. And some of the comments in the media, you know, go to you know, attack me as a, as a parent, um, and as a woman and also as an educator. And I mean, I, I, I'm confident enough in myself and I know that I have a group of people, uh, that are supportive of me and who, who really truly know who I am. Um, so I try and, you know, uh, stick within that. But I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's very, uh, it's very stone age thinking and it's a lot of stereotype and a lot of stigma. And, you know, there still is so much shame in our society around women's sexuality and it's, it's, it's just not right. And it's, it's not equal. Oh, that's a very good point that it's not equal. So where are we at in terms of you said in your interview with Jill that every time you speak publicly, um, you are notified by SD43 that that is not the correct thing to do, in their opinion. Yeah, um, and I had uh, three meetings with them since I spoke with Jill. And at each meeting, it was kind of, you know, reiterated to me that I am not to discuss anything that happens in those meetings with the media. Um, on the last meeting, the ending question was, well, are you going to speak to the media? And I said, well, I'm not sure yet. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's been an, um, uh, like a muzzling act. It's really felt that way to me anyways. Um, you know, when you're feeling like you're being treated unfairly and then you're told, well, you know, you can't talk about it to anybody though. You can't tell anybody yeah. that we're treating you unfairly. Um, now, did you sign anything? Because we're going to open up the phones on this subject in the next in the next segment. I won't ask you to take calls from our listeners, but we're going to open up the phone to get opinion on this from from yeah, people. Yeah, no, I, I sure, got do it. I, I got people asking, you know, what's the big deal? And I got other people asking, well, I mean, there's a level of, you know, expectation in certain roles, and and I think both can For be sure. true. Um, but I agree. did you ever sign anything? Uh, anything that said you can't do this? Is did they show you a clause in your? Uh, employment well, I mean, agreement that so says no. In the policies, it's like you're you're supposed to uh, conduct yourself in a manner that is appropriate for the district. Um, yeah. Of course, in these meetings, you know, they said that I was ru- tarnishing the district's reputation. 
um, and that, you know, um, basically my behavior online was inappropriate. Um, so, the, I mean, there is a clause that says you have to conduct yourself in such a way on on social media and that you have to conduct yourself in an appropriate manner outside of work that is conducive with the policies of the district. Um, I mean, I think it comes down to your, you know, what you deem appropriate. If you do, you, do you feel the termination is looming? I do. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, this the decision was already made. I feel like the narrative of the meetings I had um, were very much, you know, that I had done something terribly awful. And I mean, they've they basically told me that I had tarnished the reputation of the district. Um, my response is so unrecoverable. You know, the, yes. Yeah, and my response is well, I think it's. I think the thing that's ruining the reputation is how I'm being treated by them. So they asked you to take everything down off your social media and you said no. Correct. And then, but did they say if you do, then you can remain employed? Or did they say if you don't, then you will be fired? There was never any of that. This has been a slow Band-Aid rip. Um, Well, they said fail. So in the first notice, it was like failure to do so. So failure to take down your social Mm. media will uh, could end up in, um, you know, disciplinary action or termination. Right. Will you fight this if you're terminated? Will you go for wrongful dismissal here? Absolutely. And I've already got the backing of the union to uh, grieve, grieve whatever happened. So. Well, Kristen, thank you for sharing your story. I'm sorry we're uh, contributing to getting you into further hot water with uh, your employer. Um, but definitely no, keep us posted. I, I, I appreciate the fact that you have the the guts is the wrong word, the, 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 that you're brave enough to not wear the muzzle. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And so many do listening to your strength here. The fact that it's about... You in a bikini at the beach on Instagram and a subscription only OnlyFans page that you you literally have to be verified as an adult in order to access. It's a it's it's a not an unusual site. I think it started didn't it start with celebrities and singers and, and yes, chefs it did. and it, this is it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I thank you for your time, and uh, I will send you back to your radio, and you can listen in as we open up the phone lines on the subject, Kristen McDonald. Thank you. Thank you.